This podcast was recorded at the Battle of Ideas satellite event, Cultural Regeneration or Gentrification, held at the Nunnery Gallery in London on 14th of October 2014. My name is David Bowden, I'm the satellite coordinator at the Issues of Ideas and one of the main organisers of the Battle of Ideas Festival. For those of you who don't know that much about the Battle of Ideas, it's the leading festival of public debate in the UK. It's now in its 10th year, having been launched in 2005, and takes place at the Barbican this weekend, on the 18th and 19th of October. It features 400 speakers taking part in 80 debates on some of the key questions facing society in areas around arts, culture, science, education, politics, as well as many other themes and topics, which involves a a public audience of 2,000 who um, take part in the discussions. One of the reasons we launched the Battle of Ideas um, back in 2005, a lot of people thought it wouldn't really work that well, was to try and launch a kind of public forum which offered a bit more space for kind of public discussion engagement than you would find elsewhere, kind of in the media discussions, increasingly in the online world. Actually, a sort of sense where the kind of public are not just encouraged to be a kind of TED-style audience where they listen to presentations from leading figures in their field, but they're encouraged to challenge them, to answer back, to put points to them, to, to really put them under a bit of intellectual pressure, to have a kind of response to that debate. And that's what we've, we've been doing over the last 10 years. Hopefully we'll be doing over uh, many more years. And that's what we try to do with the satellite events which run around the country. So hopefully if you, if you like the format tonight, then please do... Um, check out the programme for the Battle of Ideas. There are great student deals and uh, school pupils go free for uh, a day, £10 for the weekend. Um, do check out battleofideas.org.uk for full details. But onto tonight's discussion. Now, 2014 has seemingly been a year of triumph for London, having been declared variously the best city in the world by PwC's Cities of Opportunity back in May, the world's most desirable city for foreign workers last week by Boston Consulting Group, and the best city for culture only in the past few days by Best Culture Destinations, uh, a prize I have to confess I wasn't familiar with until they announced London as the uh, best city for culture. And in fact, in the Mayor's own uh, recent Cultural Capital Report, he is keen to stress that London's vibrancy is not only built on business and the traditional arts and cultural institutions, but also the impact of its informal culture, ranging from street artists such as Benign through to the skate parks of Southbank and the creative heartlands of East London. This is very much a sense that London's strength has been built on its creative vibrancy of artists working everywhere in the, in the community. Yet alongside that economic success, there comes an inevitable trade-off, with the growing resentment of traditional communities being priced out of London altogether, as London's Rampant regeneration transforms areas once affordable, if perhaps unfashionable. In fact, back in August, Pauline Pierce dubbed the Hackney heroine for her role in calming tensions during the 2011 riots, warned that the anger at the social cleansing of areas such as Dalston, led by white hipsters in beards and bobble hats, could be the next flashpoint of social unrest. And over the past year, there's been no shortage of um, other kind of particular examples of tensions between um, the, you know, the, kind of the gentrifiers and local communities, whether it was the anger expressed at bars such as the Job Centre in Deptford, housed in um, uh, the former Job Centre there and styled in that manner, or the Twitter storm that surrounded Clapton's new brasserie, complaining that their launch had been ruined by the fact that a local youth had gotten himself stabbed and bled all over their shop. 
The tensions seem to be neatly summarised this summer when Turner Prize nominated artist Catherine Yass was prevented from dropping her piano from the top of the Balfour Tower, supposedly in tribute to the lost socialist ideals expressed by uh, Goldfinger. And the reason that the opposition was launched was on the basis that residents were concerned that such a move could be seen as antisocial and potentially dangerous. Yet neither is necessarily in this culture just held up straightforwardly um, as a symptom of social change. It's also held up as an active driver in it. The, uh, an article in the magazine City Lab um, used the term art washing to term processes where areas are cleaned up through cultural and artistic interventions ready for cheap regeneration. Whereas other publications have termed it, the, a, lot of the, uh, a lot of young artists, young creators, can be classed as the hipster shop troops of gentrification. What's actually driving this angle? What's the kind of real target? What are we trying to, to, to rage against here? Are the arts and cultural sectors merely symptoms of, or drivers, of the problems, and perhaps some of the benefits that become associated with regeneration? Is the debate underpinned by assumptions on either side over what the authentic nature of an area's culture should be and how artists are supposed to engage with that? How do we balance the challenges posed by social change with the cultural benefits brought about by them? And ultimately, is gentrification just the inevitable outcome of what happens when an area becomes regenerated with the arts and culture taken as the, taken as the lead on to try and pick apart that, I've kind of gathered together um, just a panel of sort of commentators, people involved in this debate who can sort of offer their, their thoughts. Um, I kind of have done this as a kind of round table discussion, I think, because I'm always slightly concerned that what happens in these discussions is because it represents so many different things to different people. Is if, you let, if you go off and ask people for four different speeches, you'll get four entirely different debates on your hand. So I've decided to try and cut straight to the chase where I just put a couple of questions to them. You know, let them sort of try and sort of discuss, offer their thoughts and their perspectives, kind of drive forward the discussion in a certain way, before I throw it open to you in the audience. And then I'll go out to the crowd and try and take, um, you know, hopefully rounds of questions, not just a kind of question and answer session. I kind of really want to try and use this as an opportunity to think through some of the kind of trickier aspects of the debate. But just to briefly um, introduce them, I'm just going to give them um, one line, really. Um, I have uh, to my immediate left Emma Dent Code who is the leader of the Labour Group at the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea Council, and also a design and architecture journalist with a special interest in the trellis tower. Um, in fact, was that the subject of your thesis, did you say? It wasn't, but yeah, a lot. Okay. Um, to, uh, to my far right, I have Alan Miller, um, who is a co-director of the uh, New York Salon, which is a kind of discussion forum, kind of influenced and kind of works in partnership with the Battle Ideas, organises kind of these kind of discussions um, in New York and increasingly around America as well. Um, but he's also the uh, co-founder of London's Truman Brewery and the um, CEO of the Vibe Bar on Brick Lane, if you know that. So perhaps could be charged with being a gentrifier-in-chief in many ways. Um, somebody who led the, uh, a particular range of it, but he, I don't think he will let me get off scot-free for that accusation. But he also he works himself as, yeah, as a filmmaker, somebody who writes um, on the arts and is heavily kind of involved in discussions about arts and the creative economy. To my far left, we have Fergus O'Sullivan, who is Europe correspondent for City Lab, where he has covered the cultural debates around gentrification and regeneration extensively, including, coining the term, art washing, in fact. Um, so we're delighted that he could uh, be here on the panel to try and pick apart these questions. 
And then last but by no means least, we have James Stevens, who's a strategic planner for the Home Builders Federation, focusing particularly on London, the East and South. So I think, like I say, I'm just going to try and, you know, perhaps just throw a couple of questions. Let's sort of see, you know, to, to what you think on this. Is that, I mean, is that charge about, are people actually just, is reality that people are uncomfortable with the fact that areas are changing, that people are being priced out of it, and it's very easy to attack what seem to be the most visible manifestations of it in terms of, of, of arts and culture. Emma, you seem like. Um, I'm very happy to answer that because I not only have my gut feelings about this, I've got the proof for it because I'm a politician who uses evidence being an academic as well and I use evidence on everything I say and put out a press release or make a speech without having references so that, um, to some of my opponents. Um, so I can prove, and I've got in front of me all the money that my council spends on the arts here, Opera, Holland Park, we've got our own opera, um, and Leighton House and all the museums and so on, and how much they spend tens and tens of millions of pounds on that, saying that it, it improves everybody's lives and, and encourages business and so on, while they're cutting and cutting and cutting all the other things in the name of austerity. And I can prove it doesn't work because I know uh, I've got here all the stats from the Office of National Statistics and how much poorer my community, my community which is around uh, Trellick Tower, the top of Portobello Road, Goldwell Road, is getting poorer and they're getting iller, they're dying younger, life expectancy from a younger man in my ward is 63 and that's reducing. We have children with rickets, we have people going hungry and that's quite genuine. If you go to Goldwell Road Market it's fabulous. And you look at it and there's some trendy shops there, and they're doing art projects and they have lovely graffiti walls, all kinds of public art things going on which they spend money on while people are quite genuinely, and I can prove it, are starving and they're not faring well. So unless the people are coming up with the area, that, that is not regeneration. And I've been having a battle with the leader of the council about what regeneration is. Um, and uh, we had a, we came up with a well, I came up with a with a with a proper definition of it. So unless it in, improves people's lives, the people who already live there, it's not regeneration. And I'm going to fight that till the day I die because it makes me furious that they can justify spending on the arts um, while people go hungry, and which is happening quite generally. Okay, yeah, focus seems like it was the Okay, well, could you just, just refresh the question again? Well, I mean, is there a lot of the, the tension driven by the fact that people are more uncomfortable by the, by the political change than anything to do with it? It's easier to tackle well, know, a new well, coffee shop or a new gallery and say that this is, going, this is well, gentrification going on here, when in reality... Yes, I mean, I think the issue here, I mean, there's, there's all this sort of talk about... I mean, it almost makes my jaw exhausted just even saying, you know, hipsters and new coffee shops and bike shops and fixed, you know, different types of hats or whatever. And I do think that's a, that's a sideshow, and it's a, quite a damaging sideshow, because it suggests that the process is going on around London, that if we've got a different cast of characters in to pilot that process, then everything would be all right, or everything would be really, wor- really worse. And we have this kind of mi- middle-class media typified by people like me, that right or right... Uh, cover these, these um, issues by looking at artists and middle class incomes because they're the people that they most resemble and I think actually beating ourselves up about oh there's a cafe opened and people can't afford it, it is bad but what, there's far worse things going on such as the fact that um, well there's massive displacement in this area for me this is a top down 
process, gentrification and regeneration, and it involves large developers and large investors um, appropriating often public land for private profit, and in doing so, driving people out into far worse conditions outside London and making their lives work far more miserable. So I think a critique of regeneration and a critique uh, that focuses on artists is completely missing the point. I think it's like um, it's like complaining about the state of the toilets on the Titanic. Okay, there's a bigger issue at stake. At the same time, I do think that it's worth sweeping away um, this delusion that somehow, by as, as Emma's pointed out, that somehow by sponsoring the arts we are creating some form of uh, some, some genuine benefit for people that aren't directly involved in it. Because we're not, and I think that while we still support that, I think artists, they're not necessarily the worst victims of it, but they're being played, they're being exploited for other people's profit, and they need to call them out on that. You know, um, I think... I think it's really, I actually really liked the article that Fergus wrote um, and because I think that he uh, began to look at intelligently what is often a silly dichotomy where people say, you know, this is all bad, cafes, bearded guys, hipsters, or this is all just really good. I, I think we need to take a step back for a second because I think there's an awful lot that's thrown into the same uh, uh, blender in a discussion about regeneration or gentrification. One of my concerns today is that I think that um, we should have as much as possible and more, and everyone should have that. It's very unfashionable today. Some people will nod with that. But I don't see any reason why ordinary people uh, can't have the arts, lots of them, as much as possible. But that, that won't make them not be obese, and that won't make them in touch with their self-esteem, and that won't build houses, and that won't build hospitals, and won't do any of those things. That would provide the arts. And why we can't have a really ambitious house-building campaign uh, and investment in infrastructure and hospitals and all the things that Emma points to which are still problematic in society uh, but that it shouldn't be imposed on the idea of artists or cafes or local uh, things that are coming into the area which as it happens I think do improve the area but we have a much bigger issue which is um, we have a lack of ambition politically nobody really wants to address the issue of what the state should do and what capitalism should do today Supposedly, there is no alternative, and if that's the case, let's, let's have a really ambitious uh, capitalist plan about how we're going to develop loads of houses that are affordable and everyone can spend and earn and we can create job creation. Or let's have a discussion about how the state can be involved. But I think what ends up happening is it trivialises the discussion about what we need in cities when we start uh, pointing uh, at, at sort of trendies and gentrification. It also, unfortunately, I think what ends up happening is it... it uh, demonises all the wrong candidates and it sort of it says you know these guys that are doing street art or these guys that are on their bicycles they're the problem and it sort of puts people against one another as it happens usually some middle class people some working class but I would just say ordinary people and I'm much more interested in seeing how we can have uh, a positive ambition in terms of do things so on the one hand if you look around Hackney if you look around Deptford if you look around parts of Camden Lewisham all sorts of places some of the things that are happening are quite creative and interesting, and some of them are not. But, but it shouldn't be hoisted on those things to resolve the much bigger infrastructure problems. And we all have a responsibility to make those things happen. Okay, I mean, James, since you're the, the voice of home builders on that one, maybe you want to pick up on Alan's point. Art washing, I think, is, is a very apposite term, and I think, I think your term, Fergus, as well, what is it, which I was very uh, I warm to very, very much. 
uh, uh, the hipsters of the shock troops of the gentrification movement. I think that's absolutely the case. And certainly the house building industry is looking with great interest at where you artists are doing your thing. And I assume I'm talking to an audience that are largely made up of artists. We are very interested to see where, where not only communications are very important, transport nodes, but we want to see where there is some cultural life. And it is creating a lot of very real tensions. Uh, um, I think the problem was in the past it was feasible, and this is where I disagree with you, Fergus. In the past it was possible uh, that when areas were gentrified, like Notting Hill, uh, uh, like Islington, and then like Shoreditch and Spitalfields, it was possible for the people who were displaced to actually move somewhere else. And that generally meant they went out into the wider southeast, uh, places like Essex uh, and, and, and places like Hertfordshire. That opportunity is really disappearing now. And I know, because I deal with plans up and down the country, I know that most planning authorities in the wider southeast are not planning for anywhere near enough uh, houses they should be. And they're certainly not planning for the Mayor of London's assumptions about increased outward migration from London. But the population in London has increased exponentially over the last 10 years. Two-thirds of that is fuelled by international uh, uh, migration and inward migration from elsewhere in the UK. That's you young people all coming to move to London. The population of London is currently 8.2 million. According to the 2011 census, in a few months it will be 8.11 million. That's comparable to the highest level it was ever seen in 1939 and in about 20 years' time it will be up to about... Uh, uh, up to be, be up to about 9 million, 9.11 million. So there is an exponential increase in growth and therefore households. And there is a very great demand as a consequence for land. And developers are very interested in creating margins, so they are interested in places which will yield high values. So they can buy land in places like this in the East End at relatively low uh, use values, existing use values, but they can redevelop them, redevelop them and sell them for a much higher price and you, hipster shop troops, are the people who are allowing that to happen. Uh, whether, to address Alan's point, whether it is feasible to have everything, I'm not so convinced. There is such demand for all sorts of services, not just land for housing, but land for industry and the economy and for health and education. I think it is very difficult to provide the arts uh, and the other kind of luxuries uh, uh, that, that, that we think it might be possible to provide. I think those uses will get priced out. It wouldn't necessarily, I don't think it would necessarily be a bad thing if London was able to loosen its corsets and breathe, if we, if we reconsidered the role of the Green Belt and allowed London to expand within its own administrative boundaries. But on the face of it, I just can't see it happening. On the face of it, people will be priced out of London. You know, it is a global city, it's extremely attractive to, to people, and therefore, People have to start deciding, does our planning system provide for the needs of the nation? Yeah, well, I mean, that seems, that seems to be a good focal point of it. Because my concern about the, the arts debate is it, start, it starts to become everyone kind of apologising for where they are or um, why they're there. Or it becomes people complaining that you know, they can no longer afford to be based in an area. And some of that is, is changed. People go to where it's cheap. That becomes a thriving arts area then they kind of move on. I mean, is that... Well, well that was two things. I mean, uh, the first thing, I think the one thing that's useful about um, this guilt of, oh, what can I do, is actually it exposes the process for what it, what it is. People say, oh, no, no, now there are all these lovely cafes. I try not to use the word cafe again. I mean, how are these amenities? And then you push them and say, well, what can I do? I, I can't afford where I grew up. 
this is, I think, the important about the, the, the guilt and the complaining and the self-apology is that it shows that this is not a process driven by choice. You know, it's not. People would not be doing this. People say, oh, look, I, I've started up an amazing new workshop in the back streets of Peckham. It's because they can't afford somewhere in Camden. It's not, um, it's, it, I think, I, I, I feel like I'm apologising for incomers, which is, I, I feel very neutral about them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it, but I just think we need to acknowledge that every single person, even if they're, you know, the boot they're wearing is even more hobbled and more aggressive when it hits you, they've still got a boot up their arse themselves. Yeah, but I mean, isn't it true that people are still making choices in terms of what they're doing? They're not necessarily doing it in the circumstances of their, their making, but to deny that there's kind of choice in, involved in it. I mean, there's always choices involved in where you live, where you're moving to, what you, how you locate to the... For, 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 is for it necessarily that way? But people. not for the people that they displace. Well, no, no, but I mean, but why is it necessarily that way? People have been displaced. Where the debate needs to shift on is to actually the people that ultimately are being displaced. Because, again, this, this focus on the middle... I think basically when you think about who are the real motives behind this, and it is, you know, sort of large-scale capital basically, and who are the real victims, it's people that actually don't have choices. And I think that we get caught into this looking in the middle at the kind of, they are the agents of it because, you know, they've got momentum behind them pushing them, and they don't suffer the most. But I do think that this middle ground is not where the issue is. Emma? Um, yeah. Um, I agree entirely with that. Um, certainly, the short trips in, in Kensington, Chelsea, don't have don't have fashionable beards. Uh, there are people with serious money, serious money coming in and buying up entire new blocks of flats, and they're not living in them. They they wrap them up and they in, in plastic, and then they they wait until they until the price goes up and up and up because actually it's a better investment than gold at the moment, a property in, in my borough, and that affects everybody. But um, so it's the big money. Um, it is the big money, and actually, it's our council as well who are completely complicit with that process, even though they protest against it. But Fergus is absolutely right, and I deal every day with people who are suffering from regeneration and being chucked out of their homes, um, and and they've been lied to countless times and are being moved to Barking and Dagenham when they were told they're going to be moved there. Uh, and um, as one example. Uh, my ward, uh, one particular estate which is being re- uh, redeveloped, I'm not going to call it regenerated, um, it's a post-war estate, nothing really wrong with it. I had countless friends, architects and planners coming around and giving their advice on how it could be improved without knocking it down. Uh, it's about a third um, Muslim, a lot of them Moroccan, because there's little, little Morocco around there. Um, a lot of them third generation have gone off to uni and everything else. Um, so, you know, it's that, that nice process of immigrants coming over and working their socks off and their children, grandchildren doing much better. Um, and they promise they'd provide family homes and they're not providing family homes. So th- those people who may have two or three or maybe four children, probably not more than that, and maybe their granny lives with them, are being moved out. And that's a very subtle way of, of not only social cleansing but racial cleansing and I'm seeing that in my ward and it's really vile. I had surgery last night and two, two people coming in, where, where am I going to live? They're sofa surfing, they don't know where to go. People are doubling up in people's flats because they don't want to leave the area because that's their, their place. So I, I see it from, I see that, that, I don't see the bit in the middle, I, don't, I, I think they're the flotsam actually of the, of the tsunami that's coming and it's big money affecting the let's not call them little people, but you know what I mean, the people who have um, a quieter voice, and that, that distresses me. Okay, Alan? 
I think you should call them little people. I think that it ends up being a patronising discussion about, uh, you know, I, I hate that song, We Are The World, but I actually do think we make the world. And, you know, often, uh, I go to different cities, I go to Shanghai, and one of the things that's slightly amusing in Shanghai is, on the one hand, I don't speak Mandarin particularly well, but a lot of the guys in the taxis come from uh, the inner lands and, and, and to have trouble communicating, but... It's almost impossible to find some new areas because everything in Shanghai and in Beijing is new, almost. And every time you go back there, it's entirely transformed. There's a, a, a sense of confidence and ambition and aspiration about what's possible. Uh, there's a dynamic. Are there problems? Of course there are. Uh, but, but the thing is, there's a sense in which it's possible to make things happen and build new horizons and opportunities. And a lot of young Chinese people are very ambitious and aspirational. I think it's really problematic uh, I don't see any political parties of any few uh, actually committing to a programme of five million houses over the next five years, which is what I think we probably need in the UK. I mean, Alex Proud uh, often writes in the Telegraph, he thinks 300,000 apartments in, 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 in London. I think we need more. When we start talking about uh, uh, needing more for everyone, then we see what really starts panning out because people have all sorts of concerns like limits to growth. We can't keep expanding. If we do that here, what's it going to mean? The green belt. Actually, over 90% of the British Isles it is not developed on. The problems of, of resources, you know, that old argument still stands, right? The reason why there's unemployment, the reason why we don't have houses for people isn't because there's not enough builders, it isn't because there's not enough land, it isn't because there's not enough bricks. It's because it just, as it happens, hasn't become our intention to make all those things come together in a sensible way. And you may be of the old left-wing view, you may be of a right-wing, whatever those terms mean, but I think we need to have a really serious new consideration about how we get to grips with big, uh, ambitious plans and programmes, because while I agree we need much more, and everyone gives lip service to it now, Mark Carney, you know, everyone you talk to says, yeah, we need more housing, we kind of do, but when you really come to say we're going to do this as a commitment politically, and we're going to say we're going to go for growth, and we're going to invest... That's what political parties surely should be doing. Or we alternatively need to say this is what we demand. And as it happens, lots of money is good. But little people, as it happens also, have changed history. Peasants that didn't even go to school, which most people in Britain are not, have transformed the world. So the whole idea that the little people can't do anything either is also quite patronising. And I think what we need to do is much more, sort of slightly infuriating with the regeneration and gentrification debate, because it ends up getting put into these little pigeonholes when what we really need to do is have a grown-up discussion about uh, uh, how we invest and, and, and transform infrastructure in our landscape. James? Uh, thanks, so. I'll, I'll, I'll try and be succinct. Um, London's needs are, are considerable. I mean, the Mayor of London, under his own assessments, thinks that the, the need is for 62,000 dwellings a year. Um, he's only able to find capacity for 42,000. He is therefore assuming that there is going to be a process of outward migration. As I've explained, he hasn't agreed that with the authorities of the wider southeast, and they're not making provision for it. So in the past, if there was gentrification in Islington, people were able to go somewhere else. They can't do that now. As a consequence, there is a real need to maximise supply in London, and it's the estates, it's the council estates that Emma was referring to, which are kind of in the firing line. And that's because a lot of Conservatives uh, in London, of course, don't want uh, that provision being found in places like Bromley and, and Sutton and Kingston upon Thames and Richmond upon Thames. So the focus is very much upon estate regeneration. 
What we don't know at the moment is what's happening. There isn't any clear research on this. It's what is happening to those residents. Uh, Emma's referred to... There is to research the, on it. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear that because I've been trying to find out quite how these people are treated, where they're displaced to and whether they're actually coming back. I'll give uh, you a list. Thank you very much. That would be really useful to see that. Uh, but of course, that whole vision of a state of regeneration and the whole idea about regeneration and gentrification is a vision which is entirely consistent with the whole urban renaissance uh, agenda. And if you read Richard Rogers and Anne Power, who were the original architects of the urban renaissance agenda towards an urban renaissance, the urban task force report, this is what they talked about. And they talked about uh, the role of artists uh, and the role of public institutions in transforming areas and increasing property values, increasing the development values and increasing the property values. Uh, and uh, what they didn't really scrutinise at all, which they didn't really foresee, was what actually happened to those people. They always thought that the original residents would be accommodated within those areas, and I don't think we're seeing that at the moment, and, and Emma's research might be able to show really what's happening to them. But, but this, what you're living through at the moment is the direct result of 20 years of government policy, whether by the Labour government or the Conservative government, and that is, that is problematic. Yeah. Can I just ask a question to go back to him, because you know, okay. you're touching on something that is, is important, you know, 62,000 a year or whatever. Oh, will that make any difference if those are out on the open market? Because, I mean, this is, all, this is a, a truism, but one of the substantial things that's driving up property prices in London is that they're kind of born to the international world, just in, born to in speculation, and they're ways to store money. Now, do you think that simply providing enough and a huge injection of new flats is going to be enough, or is it just not going to fuel, you know, fuel, keep the situation as it is, as we already have it? Or, or a, a huge amount of the flats being developed supposedly for people that aren't richer in London are completely happy on their pockets. Yeah, I think anybody on uh, an average income in London is priced out of the London, of the London property market because it is such an attractive place uh, for overseas investors. House builders have commitments to marketing uh, uh, their developments uh, um, to, uh, to the indigenous population, you know, usually for about two weeks, but it, it is a struggle for people to afford. And in the past, uh, that, was, that, that was, wasn't untypical. In the past, people did leave London to find affordable accommodation. But as I said, that option <coughs> has disappeared. You know, places like Rygate and Banstead, which was to provide, be a growth point uh, to provide for the needs of, 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 of the greater southeast, and places like Ipsfleet, you know, you've heard all the talk about the new town, those places are only meeting their own indigenous needs. They're not planning any longer, you know, to receive Londoners coming from outwards. Uh, um, uh, in, uh, migrating inwards and the South East are drawing up the, the barriers, you know, they don't want to have to address London's burgeoning population so the corollary of that Fergus is yes, it is, it is in, impossible really for people on average incomes to afford in London anymore so therefore you're dependent upon affordable housing, which is a specific tenure kind of social housing intermediate uh, accommodation and that's in scarce supply um, or you have to move further and further out into England if you want to have a home. Okay. I don't know what's going to happen. I can't see, it's a bursting point. I can't see the, the situation as being sustainable. Okay, so Alan, you just want to, you want to jump I, I in? Think it, I think it's very simple in some ways. Now we're just on the crux of it. I think that we need to decide what kind of uh, uh, housing uh, campaign we would need, uh, and then we need to argue for that or make it happen. 
Now that might sound flippant and glib, but actually I think it goes to the heart of it. The, the, the discussion similarly about wages, about job creation, about you know hospitals, about all of those things. How do we organise it in this world? It seems to me that it's been hoisted onto a really strange discussion about, you know, like we did the Truman Brewery, right? It's in a ten and a half acre site several hundred small companies, small to medium-sized enterprises. Let's not pretend that we're going to replace British shipbuilding or car manufacture or Ford. I mean, where did anyone think that was going to happen? What it is, is a real estate play. Absolutely was that. But it wasn't in the same way that some others do it. Doing some things with some interesting creative people. And absolutely lots of developers do this. Developers are in the market. Let's just all recognise, as we know, developers in the market to make some money from what they're doing. I thought it was about ideas that were about improving and changing the world, and that was about politics. And it's not that the evidence is all there, because we're told that about everything today, from our views on a whole range of issues. The evidence is out, it's done, whether it's about the environment or whatever. But actually, this is about politics. This is about what you think the world should be and how it should be done. And it's not being left up to other people. It's actually, we all have a responsibility to argue and be involved and make a claim for it. And I think these days, you know, it's like people talking about students or young people or ordinary workers, people, it infantilises everyone. It says, you know, oh, poor people, they can't do this. At the end of the day, if we don't like it the way it is, we have a responsibility to argue for what's better. We make the world every day. And uh, uh, therefore, I think, if we genuinely believe there needs to be more houses uh, and apartments, then we should have a discussion about how we can make that happen, along with employment and along with all those other things. And don't leave it up to some other people. I mean, that's my view. Is there something you wanted to come back to? You're doing a, you're doing a grim I'm not sure you can... I can even start okay. <laughs> on this particular debate um, about housing and so on, as if nobody is doing anything out there. I'm feeling a little bit insulted here, because I'm working out there every day with people slogging their guts out, working two or three jobs, trying to pay their bills, while the bills go up and up and up. Their estate gets redeveloped, um, they are promised, and I have written guarantees from their housing association that they'll be paying the same. They're now paying far more because everything's gone up and they lied. They were lied to. They, they don't have the capacity to get better paid jobs. They're in the jobs they're in. Um, so this fantasy that people should just get on with it and all everything else, this idea that, that this, this huge raft of people who are, are lazy and, and can't be bothered skivers, I find incredibly insulting. I work for them, um, and I know them, and they're my neighbours. And so, you know, this idea that, that, that um, I'm infantilising them when I'm looking after them, and I know them, that's what I do. That's what I do. I look after people who are being buffeted by that kind of attitude, frankly. Okay, it might be a good opportunity to um, go out to the audience now. I think we'll probably have. Okay, I'll take um, down the front and then there's a chat there with a, a woman in white. Are you there? Well, in one way, I don't think the panel's saying anything. You're all united and it would be really great for more housing and, and affordable housing, um, it just seems to me. But, Alan, you know, your enthusiasm and optimism and saying, well, we can have it all and we should be talking about growth, I think is valid. But isn't Emma's point about how the art have become the way to see growth, or, or the only seems to be the only game in town in urban development? And it does seem to have been a disaster. You look at all these galleries being built in Wolverhampton, and, you know, Sheffield, and, and they've all come to nothing. So, so, is there a particular problem in the way that society now is 
putting a value on art in um, having to be the creator of stuff rather than, as you say, jobs or factories or anything else. It, it, is there a problem with art from the top down, as, as Fergus said, that, that conception? Not, I think, bike shops, but art in, in its wider sense and how the government's using it. Okay, I'll just take a couple more questions. There's a person in the black jacket. Just, um, yeah, yeah and I was thinking about Emma's voice about art or um, children with rickets, and the problem is that we're living in such a growingly unequal society that art has become reflecting that inequality. And art in regeneration actually has been very well connected in places like East London. You know, I grew up here, there's a fantastic arts movement which was bottom up. It's not we're assuming that it's only the middle classes that have art and working classes that don't have any potential capacity. That's what it's like. And, and I think it is because that's the, we're living in a world where increasingly we're cutting off the working class. So I think what would be really helpful to think about are there models of regeneration that involve art that can be more inclusive or less inclusive? And what are they? And think a bit about that. Okay, anyway, just behind in the light. Um, uh, I'm an artist um, and would love to sort of talk about that, but I just want to make a quick point to the gentleman here about needing research from this lady um, about tenants and residents association being treated that way. I myself lived on the state where I witnessed this. I witnessed people being put in hospital due to the stress that they went under, losing their houses. I saw um, neighbours being evicted, sleeping on sofas, all the things you said is happening. I remember those people are musicians, teachers, artists, they're not all unemployed, they're not even all Tesco workers, um, a wide selection of people. What I think one thing that really is damaging in this is the fact that these are subsidised housing associations, they're not barracks homes, you know, they are being subsidised to provide a service, their mission statement is to do such, and then they're doing it. Um, and they're often lying to their tenants, and they're relying on the fact that a lot of them do not have perhaps the confidence that English is a first language, or the sense of right, I don't know why, um, to actually be heard. And there's a lot going on behind the scenes with artists, with other residents, to try and get these stories to be, to be heard, really. So just if you want to do any research, I'll be happy to. Okay, I'll take... Chatting to earlier, and also I saw there was another hand up there. Then I'll come back to the panel with some responses, but then we'll have plenty of time to go back out again. Um, James, you, you, you sort of pointed at us, the audience, assuming we're artists, and some of us may be artists. I'm sorry, I've been saying that. You hit the shop troops are allowing that to happen, as if somehow we are, and, and as Fergus points out, we are seen to be complicit as artists. And I just wanted to remind you that. Artists aren't necessarily middle-class, privileged, incomers into London. Lots of artists are from London, and um, in my experience, artists are struggling. They're being forced out of their homes, or they're, they're having to make incredible compromises just to sustain basic living standards. Um, and I don't think that should be excluded from this discussion. And, um, so I was just going to say, um, in terms of capitalism, capitalism thrives on growth, and whether it's using artists as a tool to push up housing prices or whatever it is, can surely, in a capitalist society, gentrification is inevitable. And you know, can we, if we're in a capitalist society, can we put a cap on rent? 
I've yeah. actually got something concrete to say that because you know we, there's this sort of what can we do attitude, but we can do some very concrete things that are being done in other European countries. Paris has just put a cap on, they're going to have an essential rental observatory that's going to set um, an acceptable rental per square meter for each neighborhood. You will not be able to charge over 20% of that rent. If you're charging over that rent, then it will have to come down over a period. Germany is doing the same with distressed zones, except it's setting at 10%. In Germany, tenants, rental tenants, they have protected tenancy. If you get in there, it's yours. After a certain amount of time, there is only a minimum, there's a small increments by which, um, by, by which your rent can go up. If someone buys your flat, they can only get you out of it if they can prove that they're going to move in there. Okay? So the um, secondary, sec when you see flats for sale in Germany, they say rented. Because you know that if you're not going to move in, then those people have the right to stay there. There are so many things that we can do that we're not doing. Another thing is, of course, everyone must know about what's been going on at Focus E15, the occupied house on the Carpenters estate, by the young mums that were thrown out of their, their hostel, um, basically told by the council that they just couldn't do the toss. Now, they've, they, just at the beginning of something, they started a really quite powerful social movement that, as you point out, shows that this is not just passive people that need stuff done for them. They can do things. Tomorrow, as MIPAN, the um, the international property market. There is a demonstration going on there. What you can do is you can go online and sign up for. Everyone has their local renters association, and a lot of those are doing things like, in an unofficial capacity, like what Emma's doing. So, uh, for example, I'm signed on to something where, um, if people are getting evicted in my borough, Lambeth or in Southwark, um, then you can go along and support them. Or if they're not getting a housing temporary accommodation they need, you can support them. These are all things that. These, these, the, the, so more social housing, more rent control, things like that, we're told they're impossible because as yet there isn't the active concerted political constituency to fight for it. But it is coming. It is happening now. It really is. And you really just please take part in it because we can change it because everybody, nobody in this room is happy about the situation. Everyone is going to look back in 15 years and go, wasn't that crazy? I can't believe we didn't do something earlier. Isn't it amazing how it finally exploded? It's going to happen. We should all be involved in it. Alan? Um, I, I lived in New York for quite a while and they have uh, rent stabilisation and rent control. Uh, and you know, New York was the city that said, give me your hunger, your tired, and your poor. And, and for America as well, where you had wave upon wave of immigration uh, of different people and a dynamic economy and society that expanded and always thought it could create and develop more and had a very big, ambitious idea, at least in the past, about you know, progress and providing ordinary people, they, they call the middle class, working class people with high level of income, you know, 30 bucks an hour at Ford, a couple of cars from your pools. These days people scoff at that and say, but oh, people in India and China do that, it'll be the end of the world. I don't believe most people that are arguing uh, about regeneration and gentrification actually want to see real development. From what I can, I'm not talking about the panel generally, I'm just saying generally, my, my uh, take on it, I think it's a bit like, I see it as a battle between that old historic figure, the right Reverend Thomas Malthus, and uh, a more contemporary figure who just recently left us, unfortunately, uh, the character that Bob Hoskin plays in The Long Good Friday, when he says the Docklands and, and all of that is potentially part of our future. And the thing is about what's happened in Britain and elsewhere internationally is, is, is you know, let's, obviously everyone remembers, but you know, there was a battle, and there was a battle between ideas, between ideas of the market and capitalism, between ideas of socialism and the state. 
And, you know, uh, uh, there was ideas about privatisation and all of those things, ideas about wages and how we should do things. And in a way, just treating this discussion as though it's just about one thing misses the point. I think we have to have, uh, you know, there are some terrible things that happen, absolutely, but how do we begin to have a conversation about resolving them? And I think that you can use empirical examples, they're often very good, and I, I, I think science and empirical arguments are very important, not to be a philistine, but also we have to have some abstract arguments about what do we mean by growth? What do we mean by development? What are we going to commit to? How are we going to argue that? And yes, people in difficult circumstances, let's just look at the East End over the last 150 years, have been involved in transforming the world. Right? People that were in uh, uh, very dire circumstances. Uh, and so I think the thing is that, um, that, that, that it's not so much are there models, it's like how do we take things that we think are good ideas. There have been movements historically where very bold, ambitious ideas, Bauhaus, all sorts of things. You might like some of them, you might dislike others, but you know, that where you can uh, 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 take some of the best and also come up with some new ideas. But I think that that requires uh, uh, some more abstract ideas about growth and, and development, and to have some of those hard arguments about, uh, against green ideas, which if we're honest as well, is a bit of the elephant in the room, because we're always told today we've gone too far, we need limits to growth, it's got to be sustainable, what about the impact on the environment? Uh, and actually I'm for one who says that let's have grow more, bigger, faster, better for everyone. Okay. Um, Emma, I don't know if you jump in, but I mean, there's, I mean there's also a sort of sense that we can... We could talk about growth. I mean, growth is quite chaotic as well. I mean, it sort of seems to me that that's always one of the striking things about this discussion is that it always does seem to be about, you know, it is a kind of regulatory is about maintaining a certain status quo from a post-war settlement is the only option that ever seems to be on, on the table. You know, as it happens, I like some aspects of the changes to London. I mean, I don't like every, the political problems that have been thrown up by that, but actually I like some of the, the massive changes and the generation and the artistic impact that's come in here. I just worry that things become a bit negative here and we only just become harking back to a past, but Emma, I'll let you. Thank this, you. This would just be one sentence. People want change. People, this, this situation we're in, it starts with right to buy in 85. We've been living in this period. It's been going on for a long period. What we need now is change, because this isn't something new. We're just seeing the end result of a process we've been living with for decades. Okay, Emma. Okay. Um, I agree with you on that one. Um, somebody said the word inequality, and you know, inequality is measurable. And I did some research um, last year during the local elections, because I'm the research nerd of the group, um, on um, statistics on, on our borough. And I worked out, I thought, you know, I, I was born and bred in the borough, you know, I lived in Chelsea before it was groovy and posh and all the rest of it, and I knew every square inch of it pretty much. Um, I had a gut feeling that Kensington and Chelsea was the most uneven, unequal borough in Britain, and I, and I was able to prove that by quite a mile, actually, and it was really shocking because we have the area places where there's virtually zero health inequality and places where it's worse than the Gorbals, you know, 65% health inequality and things like that. It is in, incredibly unequal, and I think what we're talking about, and there's a lot of research in Germany and other places where people seem to be doing it better, that less inequality is, is better for everybody, better for everybody, not just for the people at the top and the bottom, but better for everybody, and, and, and society works better. Um, and what we're seeing, certainly in my borough, 
and as I say, I always research it, and you can you can you know you can question my statistics. This is of Office of National Statistics stuff here. Um, our borough is getting more unequal, and so that's not right. And it's not even if you take off the Sultan of Brunei um, and just look at the top, the, the other two thirds, the inequality is getting worse because my ward is the, is the joint poorest ward in the whole of London, with one in Haringey, and I found that completely shocking, and nobody believes it. Oh, but it's, it's Goldborn, it's fabulous, it's got lovely shops, but actually, that's the reality of it. Um, as far as affordable housing is concerned, the affordable housing they're building in my ward of this development for, and they said, oh yeah, you can get shared ownership, you know, you can, you can, you know, you're, you've got a job, you can get shared ownership. What my residents discovered was to get shared ownership of a two-bed home, uh, they'd have to earn £60,000 a year, and that's two or three times more than any of them are earning. Um, even if they work full-time and they've, got a, you know, they've been to uni or whatever, they've got a good job. Um, yeah, the housing associations have desperately let us down. I have an ongoing battle with Catalyst Housing, who are so nasty, and I was actually physically attacked by the, by the chief executive I had reported to the police, because he got so angry because I caught him out on about 15 different things. Um, and they are absolutely appalling. They, they, I don't know who works for them. It was people like us, actually, who used to work for housing associations, and now they're taken over by crooks, as far as I crooks and incompetence, actually. Um, so this is the stuff that I deal with all, every day. So I really am immersed in it, and it's very, very painful. And it's not a question of people just not wanting change or being nimbies. Actually, there are ways of improving people's lives and improving homes um, council and housing association without leaving everybody behind and that's what we have to look at. Okay, Jane, I've got, um, uh, I'll deal with the question about social landlords first uh, because it kind of does relate on and then I'll come back to the exam question about art and, and gentrification. Um, social landlords are very interesting because they're actually, because the end of government subsidy, because of the recession, they're actually being forced to operate more like house builders. In fact, they're indistinguishable now from, from, from house builders and, and developers. Uh, Southern Housing Group recently in Islington appeal case uh, got away uh, with Dean <coughs> a 45 unit development but only six of those homes were affordable dwellings uh, because that's what it needed to do to make the scheme stack up viably. So no different from, from a housing developer. And all that is related to what I consider is the constriction on supply over decades by our planning system which has so which has turned land for development, land that's allocated in the local plan, into such a valuable commodity that it rockets in price. And therefore it is impossible, really, for uh, um, other uses, other than the most lucrative uses, to be, buy, be provided. And, for, and house builders themselves are compelled by their shareholders to achieve the best value they can, the top prices, the prices they can. Uh, and that is why the housing needs in this country of ordinary people are just not being served. The exam question, uh, art and gentrification. Uh, I've listened to the debate, it's very interesting. Alan said a very good thing about um, artists generally uh, being opposed to growth. I think that's quite interesting. Uh, except that um, I think uh, if there are artists in this room, I think you've got to decide whether you want to be an artist or whether you want to be a member of the property-owning classes. Uh, because you will be priced out of London if you continue as an artist. Um, and I would suggest... And, and I would suggest that if you want to practice an artist... Uh, let him finish. 
And I would suggest if you want to practice as an artist, you should go to somewhere like Stoke and Trench, because the MP there, Tristan Hunt, would be delighted to have you because they're struggling, you know. Hull, I've just come back from Hull's local plan examination. They can't get enough young people because young people are leaving. Yeah, and you would have lots of cheap accommodation there, and you can be an artist. Okay, but the, the, the only artists who will look, the leisure classes want some artists, you know. They've got, they've got leisure time. They want to eat and drink more than anything else, they're quite philistine. But, but they do want a bit of art, and therefore they will allow the most successful of you to continue to operate in London. But by and large, any of you who's got any gumption or any good ideas will not be able to operate in London, and, and you should go elsewhere. I know that there's quite a few gasping. James isn't the first person to suggest in history that being an artist is not the best career move in terms of it being uh, a route to riches. It's also not actually, and I always think this is interesting in this debate, because it does hark back to what was being said earlier that there's you know all of this discussion about what needs to be done in London and then what does come up somebody says oh move to Hull move to Stoke and Trent and everyone always behaves as if that's the worst thing that's ever <laughs> happened as if other people don't live in Stoke and Trent as if there's some reason why it would be terrible as an artist to live in Stoke and Trent well they don't they that's a problem so, yeah. yeah but so, I mean that, that seems to hark up at some of the bigger questions actually which sometimes indicates some of the, the mo more localised solutions maybe quite limited, but I'll, I'll, I'll take There's Alan and then I'll, I'll come out to some responses. There's a couple of really interesting things that have come up. Just a technical point. I didn't say that artists are against house building. Actually, I think politicians are against house building. House builders are often against house building. Journalists are against house building. I think we have a problem. We have a crisis in confidence about growth and development. And, and, and actually, I think that... I don't know why people get obsessed with artists. I've just been in two cities with doing some of these kinds of debates. One is Budapest and one is Athens. Both of them, as we know, are experiencing enormous problems. And often the discussion is how the arts could or should do more things. And it's to this point here, I mean, you think, why, when did anyone think that it became the responsibility of artists or art practitioners or art galleries to do things, to transform the world beyond reflect it in a beautiful way? You know, I always thought art was about having a conversation about who we are, where we are, to do it in the best of the parameters of the context in which that's possible. Uh, and I don't think it's fair, uh, or, or I think it's actually ridiculous to, to impose on it other things. Which is absolutely true. I think this point that was made was the question that was asked. You look back at Stephen Bailey's discussion about O2 and what was happening with the Millennium Dome project, the ludicrous nature of Cool Britannia. I mean, everybody's. I mean, should take responsibility for what happened. You know, post statue in Britain, politicians with no nerve, with no ideas, fumbling around. It's like your uncle, uncle trying to come down to a party and dance punk with you, or to, or to, or to house music today. You just think, are you for real? Is this what your um, solution to cities is in the 21st century? To try and pretend to be around musicians or around cool kids. Uh, and, you know, what could the model be? People, you know, suburbs, they go over from the suburbs. And you think, well, actually, suburbs was about building houses for ordinary people. And, you know, that was quite an ambitious task, and there may have been issues with them. I don't think they were good enough, they weren't interesting enough. But actually, you come out of Victorian slums, some of those things were good. I know people used to make jibes and jokes about Essex, man, ordinary working-class people, actually, that had some upward mobility ideas. But you see all these things, you start talking about them, they're quite unfashionable. Because on the one hand, people want to say, oh yeah, we're really about the people. But I think it's really disingenuous, because when you talk about what that might really mean, actually, all of a sudden, all these problems arise. And to the point about the, the country and the nation and, and, and cities, London is a big 
city, right? Internationally dynamic in many ways. It's not enough, in my opinion. And people come from all over the world here. But actually, we, we need to think about the rest of our cities and how what that means and the relationship between them and how we can improve all of them. I, I, like, I love some of our cities. I love some parts of Glasgow. I love some parts of Manchester. I think the problem, though, is endemic in all of them, that you've got the historic problems of what once was the industry of the world and how we deal with that in an age where we have no real big ideas. People are very nervous and anxious. And actually, this is a very superficial discussion where people want to kind of blame this one little section rather than talk about something that's much more difficult, which is how do you say to people we need a dynamic economy where people are paid great money and maybe work three days a week? These are all quite difficult questions. And people, you can't do that. You can't do that because you're never going to win the idea and the argument with people. So instead, what we'll do is we'll carry on blaming like little arts groups or, or evil property developers. Oh, that's not good enough. Okay. Uh, can I just see some more points or questions people may have from the floor? Can I just ask James to explore his, his thought process there a bit further? Because if, if you suggest that uh, if artists want to earn a living and they can't afford to live in London anymore, they go off to Hull, they go off to Stoke-on-Trent, or the outer beaches of uh, you know, Scotland or wherever they can go to afford to live there, what happens to London? If all of the artists leave London, what happens to the economic benefits of the artists being in London? What happens to creative education in London, what happens to the capital city, the city that we know is the, the capital city of culture, what happens then? Yeah, so, uh, well, first of all, um, on artists, it's kind of good, I suppose, what, you know, from where I'm sitting here uh, in Boards, it's good that we don't seem to be blaming artists, which is one of the kind of, you know, the trajectories of the, of the, of, of the conversation, you know, where people say, hey, you guys, you know, you are the gentrifiers, so kind of turn it all against artists. So I think it's good that we're not doing that, uh, first of all. I, I mean, so I grew up on a social housing project in the, you know, in the, in the post-war period, and uh, I would have loved to have had the nominary gallery. You know, basically it was a, it was a cultural desert, you know. There was a municipal swimming pool and a community centre. Uh, but this would have been amazing. So it seems to me to kind of, you know, and so I'm glad we're not doing it, but when people kind of, uh, you know, in a rather affected way, attack the idea of art as a source of middle class culture. I don't think that, you know, in my experience, working class people generally like, um, you know, those people who sit back, back a bit and reflect. And I've got, actually got all kinds of political positions, you know, but, uh, but, but, but think deeply about the world and, and express that creatively. So I kind of think that the, the narrow sociological separation of artists as middle class of workers, uh, to me, is not an accurate uh, description of society. Indeed, you know, I think that, again, our experience in Bowart is that lots and lots of the people who, you know, fall off the end of university with an art degree, um, you know, are actually workers, you know, and kind of, and spend 10 years uh, trying to find a way in today's economy. You know, there is no shipbuilding, there is no docks, you know, but there is financial services. There are business services and there are media industries, but it's kind of it's quite hard in any easy sense to get into that. And so it seems to me that you know that, that actually artists are trying to make out, you know, uh, you know that that's kind of part of the feature of artists. And I suppose that kind of to me connects more generally with the idea of the, you know. So again, let's kind of let's use the caricature, and we're not showing. But we talk about the little people. It strikes me that actually, you know, the problem with people who are 
really struggling in this completely exploitative, unequal set of circumstances that London is, is that is the politically that's a, you know, that's a, a section of society where you know, the kind of politics that would make a different kind of society of the scale that did exist, you know, well, at the kind of uh, just after the war, when lots of the social housing projects were built, like a really big consensus in society around a big idea, actually needs a broader um, section of people involved in it. So, to me, that's the kind of the people who are currently struggling, along with lots of people in this room who actually are struggling, along with even the people who are moving into the private housing in this area. Who, let's face it. Are you know doubling up to you know to, to take a mortgage, tripling up, borrowing money here, there, and everywhere, getting into stupid debt in order to get a job that doesn't pay a lot down in Canary Wharf, you know. So I kind of I want to attack the sociological assumption in the discussion. Me? Yeah. Um, yeah uh, someone said in their, their opening comments that uh, London's growing very rapidly. Uh, uh, I, I presume sort of offering that as some sort, of, sort of excuse. Uh, for, for some of the problems. And I think it's, uh, as, a, as a start, it's worth kind of disabusing ourselves of that notion, actually. That London's not growing rapidly today, or at least not by historical standards, anyway. Uh, you go back to the 19th century, uh, the development of London went from 1 million to 8 million within a space of a single century. Uh, and even, you know, although it's, it's uh, over the past 70, 80 years, it, or, or certainly up until the, the 1980s, it, it it reduced in size, uh, the, the growth since then has actually not been that rapid in, in, in historical terms. And I, I think it's worth thinking about how uh, we catered for that, that growth dynamic. I mean, if you go back to the 19th century, then obviously it was things like the Victorian entrepreneurs and the builders who, who, who uh, built London in the way that we, we, we knew it at the start of the 20th century. Not always fantastically, but nevertheless dynamically and catered uh, for the influx of people, a vast influx of people throughout that century. Then you get to the period after the Second World War, where London and the South East was you know, heavily reorganised. Uh, you have the state that led the, the house building project. I and mean, it was quite a dynamic one at times. It might have been technocratic and there might have been problems with it. But you, know, you got to the late 60s and we were still building 400,000 homes a year uh, in, in, in Britain. You know, it's something we could only dream about. Uh, these days. So my point is really that, that uh, uh, at a time of very rapid growth and in the past society has managed to cater for that and, and to, 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 uh, uh, to make sure that it happens in, in, in a way that I think uh, we can't imagine happening today. And I think it's worth you know, kind of asking why that is because there's been quite a lot of finger pointing going on but I think it's a kind of set of ideas that we need to to kind of realise and understand is, is, is the problem. Because what strikes me, whether it was the Victorian entrepreneurs or the kind of post-war building project, was that we had a real sense that we could build the future in both of those times, whether it was kind of business-led or whether it was state-led. There was still a sense uh, that we could create our, our future. And to, to me, it seems that that's what's missing today. You know, we no longer have a sense that we're in control of our destiny and we can actually uh, transform the world. And so, in, in all sorts of different ways, uh, we seem to offer excuses for that. We seem to develop a set of ideas that actually mitigates against us actually building a better future for ourselves. And one of them, definitely, the primary one, I think, is sustainability. Over the past uh, 20, 30 years, it's become the dominant idea of environmental limits, of limits to growth, and of limits to how we can cater for ourselves in the future. And I, I, I 
think, you know, Emma stands there, sits there, and, and, and kind of says there's big problems in the world, but you represent the Labour group, which has been one of the main perpetrators of uh, these arguments over the past 20 or 30 years. So I think it's a question for you uh, to answer there, in, in, in the way that, uh, you know, the party that you represent has been one of the main barriers to us uh, creating the kind of society that we want, and we, we kind of dress it up uh, in quite a problematic way. Okay, I'm always going to let that chap in, he's been quite patient. Yeah, so. no, that's fine. <laughs> really good question. Um, I just wanted to, well, first of all, I'm an artist, so I'm kind of, I'm, I don't enjoy art bashing, uh, but neither art washing, in a sense I'm kind of somewhere stuck in between because I'm also a tutor at the university, so I have to take a certain educational stance to it, which means I teach students that will be out there practicing artists in, the, in this language, which seems to be ecologically. Um, Wiping them out. So um, my main point goes back, clings back onto some of this opening statement, which I think was one of the most clear ones, which are, uh, is to do with the fact that we are displacing the the argument of the even, the sense of the debate of the even. Um, but the the point of whether art, artists or seem to be equating the which I know is actually the same thing at all, in a sense. And I still believe that culture is not art necessarily, or art is not necessarily one or the other. Today, culture and capital seems to be equating each other, and, and within culture, everything goes. I don't actually believe in that, and I think just a, it's a fairy tale in a sense to offer two different and two the only two models for growth, city growth that exist today: the creative quarter, perhaps already bankrupt after its austerity, and the financial city. Okay, there's hardly anything else that seems to. Unfortunately, unfortunately. But the link there exists, and that's exactly the dark matter that we, I, I thought we were going to uncover here. Because culture is not raped by capital, and it's a virgin that somehow is innocent in this kind of uh, 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 you know, um, act, in a vile act. Now, culture contributes hugely into the creation of capital uh, in terms of the aesthetic, an aesthetic dividend, in a way, is an added value that developers are very keen to prey upon because they're offered exactly by the cultural community at the highest institutional level on a daily basis. You know, uh, if, you look, if you go and look at fly-throughs uh, of uh, CGI fly-throughs of developments, which are some of the finest work ever produced by virtual reality in no day, better than gaming or anything else. In the, in the actual flight-through of the, of the developments, biennales of artists appear in worlds not yet to exist. So it's only they're not being placed there by some kind of casual or, or uh, you know, an innocent kind of situation. They've been placed there because actively, the cultural institutions of the last 20 years have offered themselves to partners with all kinds of forces which are the one driving the growth in an equal section of the capital. So we are not innocent bystanders, not in individual terms, but certainly on an institutional level, I think we have to start to think of who is our friend as artists. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that the traditional friends that we have at the top are our friends anymore. Yeah, Emma, do you want to come Yes, I do, thank you. Um, I know what you're talking about, these lovely fly-through visualisations of developments on the whole, to be frank, they have art in them because they have to 
They, it's, it's ordained by a planning, planning game law, section 106. They have to have art in them. Um, one of them that we're dealing with, you know, well, it's, it's, it's planning law. Yeah, they have yeah, to exactly. give a certain amount for that. Um, currently, we're going through something that counts at the moment for the ridiculously priced £100 million new Holland Park School, costs three times more than it should, which is going to have an Anthony Gormley sculpture on the top, which they can't afford to engineer to put up there, so we've got to give them another 150000 for the engineering of the sculpture that's going on top of the school, the £100 million school. And the £100 million school, I'm just going to move on to other things in a minute, that has, if anyone's read the papers, just produced six jihadis. Yeah, three of them have died, which is horrendous. So we're all a bit in shock this week, so that's come out. But on a happy note... <laughs> um, uh, I mean, we deal with it on, on all angles in, in our local council. Um, um, and somebody mentioned earlier on art from the bottom up. And we've had to, we've had to fight our council because their idea is that you should parachute Anthony Gormley's and all kinds of other like, famous, internationally well-known art in, because that's a shining example of what art should be. We think the exact opposite in the Labour group at Kenston Chelsea Council. We think that we should be supporting local artists to do our local projects. And we had a massive stand-up, shouty argument lasting five years um, to get some um, some arts funding in my ward. So the, the arts, the art, uh, the various different projects that are going on in my particular ward are for local artists. And it took a hell of a, I mean, it's not even that much. It's maybe a hundred grand a year, which is nothing when you have to produce everything. But actually, it was symbolically, it was massive. We were saying, actually, we don't want international artists doing the pictures and Portobello Road Wall, or whatever it may be, we want our local people because they are very good and they're fantastic and we should be supporting them. So that's one thing. So that's art from the bottom up. And we also, James might want to put his fingers in his ears now, we also done some planning from the bottom up. And there's a, there was a project in front of Trellick Tower where they, um, a criminal act knocked down a Goldfinger um, old people's home. And we had this, we had this argument with, with our conservatives who are the worst possible kind. If you imagine, if you draw a sketch of what the worst possible kind, that's what they're like in, in our borough. Then, of course, they're not like that all over the place. Um, but they can say, oh, you don't want anything, you're NIMBYs, you don't want, you don't want any development, you don't want anything. I say, okay, you're fine, then we're going to do our own plan. So we got some local architects uh, and planners to give their time, and we did a project with with local residents, and it was fantastic. Unfortunately, it was in 2009, before localism, and so our council said, yeah, we don't do this with local, or whatever. So it's sort of, it's, it's remained, it's still in the ether, someone's going back to it now, um, and they're actually looking at the, the ideas we came up with. But we did not only art from the bottom up, but we did planning from the bottom up, and it was a damn good plan we came up with. Okay, just, because I let you be sectarian with the, uh, the Conservatives and the council, like James, all the uh, free marketeers, on the point made about the fact that Labour have not entirely been politically, that oh. these are trends which have gone well, on for I'm, a long I'm time. Not an MP, as if just in the... I'm certainly not new Labour, and I wash my hands of a hell of a lot, and I argued throughout my life on what uh, the a Labour government should be doing and what the new Labour government should be doing, and I'm not part of that. I've got my own little personal Labour party that actually does things that. Uh, 
I think, you know, I, I, I engage in battle all the time, but I'm not an MP and I couldn't be, because I couldn't say what I think in public. Okay, so, yes, I want to pick up on actually something Michael said, because you're pointing out that actually we've been a bit more gentle than you expected on us. It's made me realise I've been too gentle, because it's, I, I, my point is that it's not about individuals, but I do think that art has a very, it has a very negative, potentially sort of slightly sinister role in this, in, in this whole process. And someone like, well, what's been happening in the States all the way across London, it's exactly the same thing happening on the battlefront. You have social tenants in there, they get them out, put in short term residents. Get, get them out because they're on short-term ca- ca- their short-term contracts, and then redevelop the whole thing and sell it on for a profit with a, a, a ridiculous little cachet of affordable housing that none of us will ever be able to afford. That happens across uh, across um, London, and it's going to happen. I mean, I don't know exactly what's going to happen about from, but it's not going to be social housing again. That's exactly what's going to happen. You know, it's being privatised, and but actually, what the council what the council have got is this wonderful publicity for this amazing artistic moment, which actually is just a mask for actually really what's going on. You can say, well, maybe it's just a moment, but then maybe it's just a journey we're going through that's interesting, but that is an absolute bloody cancer we have everywhere, that nobody has any responsibility to anybody, because it's all about a journey. We don't have to pay people properly, because they're going to get promoted. We don't have to give people, as a journalist, we don't have to give people money, because they've got cultural capital, or they'll have to cash in somewhere else, or, you know, it, it's that, it, it's... On one hand, it's a masking of actually what's going on, even if people are profited from it. On the other hand, it's a washing of hands of responsibility to people that are going into the state and they don't have, by the very nature of the thing, that's what you can offer them. You cannot offer them secure tenancies. And that's not a renaissance. Okay. Except maybe the people that clean the toilets in the renaissance. Okay, Alan? Yeah. If we really are honest about wanting to uh, uh, improve and benefit society. I think sometimes those things, uh, Dave, you alluded it to, what is it, can it sometimes be very problematic and challenging? Upheaval. One of the most inspiring books I've ever read was uh, Marshall Berman's All That Is Solid Melts Into Air, about cities around the world and how uh, those cities developed uh, uh, the influences of Paris and the boulevards, the impact that had on New York and some of those uh, uh, planners, what happened in uh, uh, St. Petersburg, uh, in the canals in, in Amsterdam and, and elsewhere. Uh, but with all of those things, all sorts of uncomfortable things often have to be overcome, uh, like where people live, uh, the kind of conditions they live in, uh, and you have to win ideas over to say this is better, we think this is going to be improving it or not. And uh, sometimes you'll have someone like Ro- uh, uh, Robert Moses in New York, who, who is, actually comes across a lot of uh, people who disagree with him immensely, and you could argue uh, for a long time about whether that was a benefit or not or how. But the thing about ideas and having that discussion about what are view about the city should look like, what should the country look like, what should the future look like, innovation, development, uh, bold ambitions. I don't think resources are finite, I don't think they're limited, I think that uh, they depend on how we engage with them. Uh, when I mentioned Thomas Malthus before, that he was a, lived a long time ago, but he believed that we'd only have a certain amount of resources and then we'd have chaos and we'd have destitution and listening tonight, sometimes one wonders why one thinks you can't just say, let's just develop more and have more. I've not really heard a concrete argument why we can't, but it's kind of up to us to make that argument. I would say that artists, uh, ordinary people across the country, uh, intellectuals, a whole host of people should come together and have a discussion, a bit like we're having now, about what we should do and how. Just briefly on a thing about mobility and all of that. It is the case, of course, that if no one's putting these ideas forward and arguing for them, 
people will just do some things, right? Developers will try and make money like everyone else who tries to make a profit. Let's not demonise them for that. But I, I'll give you some examples in New York, right? New York's interesting in some ways because my mum can walk around there at night and not get mugged now. But does it have the frisson and the excitement and the sense of possibility that it had in the 70s and the 80s? I don't think so. When Relative developed Times Square and done you know, some of the exciting things there, you do have uh, investment in infrastructure, but you also have the fact that young artists can't afford to live in Manhattan anymore, and they do do exactly what you've been saying, is they, they move. They move sometimes to Brooklyn and sometimes to Pennsylvania and sometimes to other parts of the country. Surely there's a way that we can have everything. But we just have to ask ourselves that question. Today, when you ask that question, can we have it all? People say, oh yeah, nothing impossible. There's got to be limits, you've got to control it, or you know, human folly, this idea that we can even have these things and we've gone too far anyway, and fridges and air conditioning. Very interesting statistic, a journalist I know, uh, Bruno Waterfield, a few years ago, made a point about uh, space and population. Uh, and maybe the statistics are slightly off now, but at the time, a couple of years ago, he said, in the size of the former Yugoslavia, the whole world's population could be housed if they lived like they do in Manhattan. And it just gets one thinking about resources and how we create them and how we build and how we want to design our futures. And I think that what we should do, and what's been really good about tonight is that um, we can have a think a bit more ambitiously about changing the discussion about regeneration or gentrification. I think it's quite superficial. And we can say that this is what we think is required in, in, in a 21st century city and cities internationally for everyone, not just for a few people. Okay, James. Um, I'm going to try and answer some of the points that yep. were raised by the people. I think the lady there and the gentleman in the yellow check shirt were kind of making an aligned point, uh, which you summarised as the aesthetic dividend, uh, and that being very important. Um, I, 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 I'm kind of, I'm, I'm not somebody who's involved in this <coughs> policy, but I've always been a little bit sceptical about that. I'm not quite convinced about it. I can see it certainly produces a dividend in terms of my members and house builders. As I said, they are very interested in what you artists are up to and, and, and where you're cho choosing to, to set up your, uh, your shops. Um, but, but I think as an institution, an arts institution, you would need to be very wary about associating yourself with that trend uh, because you would then be kind of associated with what could be quite an instrumentalist uh, agenda. And as I said, I, I, you know, I, I find most contemporary art, I confess, completely banal. Um, and I'm somebody who's quite happy sitting at home reading my Ford Maddox Ford. Um, so I, I don't really engage with these things. But, but I, but, and, and, and I kind of think, I, I, if, I, if I was a young practicing artist, I would just be very wary about what the institutions are telling me about how valuable my work is. And I really would go to Stoke-on-Trent and try and find some like-minded people and set up an artistic, an arts republic uh, and do something you know, which the authorities really don't like uh, and really piss off those house builders uh, and all those regeneration specialists. Um, the problem with what you're arguing is that you're always seeking some special dispensation under the planning system uh, to enable you to operate and that just pitches you against other people uh, who are in need. There are, there are lots of people who, who, who have needs but there's a finite amount of space in London I do agree with what um, Alan has said, that, that it is possible to do things differently, and we can, I've been kind of hinting that we need to build outwards, but it is possible to build upwards as well, but then we'd have to have a fundamental review of our planning system, I think, to enable us to do that. Um, one of the good things, I think, about current 
planning policy, Emma, is that actually under new planning policy, uh, um, the government doesn't uh, no longer uh, uh, thinks it's acceptable for, through Section 106, a planning game to pay for arts-related subjects. Uh, uh, they think they're far more important things to spend the money on, uh, such as education, schools and transport. And I kind of agree with that. I don't think as artists you should be subsidised uh, by house builders. Uh, you know, I think we have more important things uh, that our planning game um, should be spent upon. And, um, and I think Mick at the back has raised a very important question that I think as artists you do need to show your solidarity with the other groups who are currently being excluded uh, uh, from meeting their housing needs or whatever their needs are, uh, needs for space for businesses. Uh, um, because I think we do need to remember that the people who are moving, who appear to be the gentrifiers in East End are actually probably people who uh, are not paid that much, mo that much money. Uh, they might be relatively more affluent than the people they might be displacing, but they're still people who need a, a place to live. So I think we should all show a bit of solidarity and say that we need to have a real uh, rethink about our planning system and our planning laws uh, and, uh, and actually highlight how this is pitching us against each other. Okay, I'll just, uh, oh, oh, we'll just take some, just some very brief final points. And I'll, I'll take people first who haven't spoken, but we'll go back to you two. So I'll take you first and then I'll start in white and then in the middle of that. So, yeah, I sort of agree with you saying that the, the public aesthetic and need to get engaged. And in my experience, Conservative councils have been as bad as Labour councils about regulating the market. Um, so, what would each of your one um, recommendation for a council or the state's regulating market be? Okay. Um, just really, just to pick up how someone said a while ago about the notion of culture. Um, I think it's interesting that, you know, I lived in Brixton for quite a few years and there was a huge amount of culture. When I say I'm an artist, I'm an actress. Or, um, but, you know, there's a huge amount of culture, dance, theatre, a lot of, you know, music that was going on there for years, um, which wasn't often given the, the front that the new sort of... Um, new artists, a new, the, I would say, the more sanitised cultural um, identity that is obviously needed by property developers and needed to sort of sanitise an area. So to, I just think it's this, this notion of kind of labelling, which I know we have to do in order to organise and make money in society, it doesn't, it doesn't really hold up, I don't think, if you look at it. Because, yes, the arts are middle class, Absolutely, I think we'd be quite naive if we said they weren't. But if we want art to really reflect society and life, which we, as you were saying at the end, it, believe it should do beautifully, then it needs to be able to reflect all forms of society. So if everyone who's got darker shade of skin, uh, unfortunately in this is the world we live in, they tend to be on a poorer, lower economic scale, is excluded to Stoke and Trent or Hull, then we're going to have a very sanitised, one-dimensional artistic agenda and it's really a shame. I think a lot of artists are waking up to that. A lot of artists are feeling quite unhappy they're part of that and, and hopefully we're going to join together to do something, as you said, to combat that because actually artists should be political and it shouldn't just be there to titillate a certain group of elitists. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I wanted to address um, this to James again. Um, you were suggesting, you seem to be suggesting that um, artists are um, only here in London because we're being subsidised 
and again sort of separating us from people who need housing, from people who are struggling to live. Um, I just wanted to point out that artists are generally not subsidised. Um, maybe art galleries might be subsidised, or art institutions, or after school classes for kids, um, but artists are generally not subsidised and in fact they are able to make use of things that other people aren't using. Um, so if the artists weren't here, um, for example the building that I'm in for my studio at the moment, would probably be derelict like the building next to it, um, like a lot of the buildings are along the canal, maybe they won't always be derelict, but at least that building is being used, and I doubt that any other set of people would use it. So I just want to point out to you that I do think that you've got a, a skewed idea of why artists are in London and how we exist. Okay, I'll just make it the back. Well, I suppose, like, if I was in Emma's situation and I had to choose between an Anthony Gormley and uh, golfing this old people's home, I would probably choose a new old people's home, you know, that's going to, in a constrained situation, I would make that, that choice. But turning it the other way around, it strikes me that, you know, again, thinking about where I grew up, last night I was outside of the British Broadcasting House, and there was Eric Hill's uh, Ariel and Apollo, you know, this kind of beautiful uh, Portland stone uh, statue on the front of the, the British Broadcasting House. And I think that, you know, maybe for me a different way of thinking about it is the Gormley is kind of not good enough. You know, I would have liked to have had statues like that uh, on, the, on every street corner where I grew up, you know. So in this spirit, if we're going to speculate about possibilities, it does seem to me that when we're forced to make those choices uh, between essential needs and culture, then it kind of, you know, you know that's kind of, that's a bad thing for us. It's, it's really good for us to be uh, aspirational about art, which has no social purpose in any direct sense. Okay, great. Well, if I, um, there was a challenge put to you um, to come up with one idea uh, around, sorry, say it again. Everyone just Particularly around sort of house building. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or is it something? Yeah, so I was, I was going to say, I mean, you all put with a, a charge of uh, 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 a couple of practical solutions. You don't have to provide them, but if you well, want no, to no, leave, no, leave no, us no, with no, a final point, because, to, no, but in a way, you answer because I mean, I, I don't, I don't um, actually, I'm not an expert on, on public policy. So, um, in terms of exactly, you know, there are various things that I would like to see more of. I would like to see councils investing in social housing rather than affordable housing. I would like to see um, caps on rent prices, um, and I would like to see stricter conditions for landlords, better tenancy agreements that give people longer term, longer term less. I think those would all um, greatly improve the situation. Whether they're enough, I think in the current situation they're probably not. I think they would ease things, but I think we're so screwed at the moment that they wouldn't actually necessarily be a resolution. And as Anna has pointed out, we have sort of big conversation. That would be my beginning. Sounds like a decent start. Emma? Um, okay, um, we do put our ideas forward to our council every year about what we, they should be doing, including large tracts of land that have been sat on by developers in the, in the borough, which is despicable. Um, I would like to say it's a very poor Gormley and it looks like a gibbet. 
It's awful. It's really awful. Even some people who like Gorm, they go, but why, why are we paying this? Um, and one of our, the ideas we put forward is that the, the, the kind of art projects that our council think consider as high culture, which is in a very patronising way, good for people, uh, we would always suggest that it should be put out there. So our council loses a million pounds a year on Opera Holland Park, loses. They fund an opera which loses a million pounds a year. If they didn't do that, or they handed the opera over to local groups to do something amazing with, that would be really interesting to spend that kind of money. And they spent the last five years a million pounds on buying what well, like I said was ladies in 90s paintings and they all looked really puzzled and I said well it's, this is pre-Raphaelite art and they were quite appalled that I, I was accusing them of buying erotic art but they have this idea that this is that, that's what it's all about the pre-Raphaelite age is good when women wore 90s and they were very submissive and the modern age is something else scary um, <laughs> so um, yes I mean we, the, the, I would like to shift some of that money off for, for local projects and actually our borough we're not, we're not short of money we have the money we can make those choices a lot of boroughs can't so if we're going to do art we should do art for everybody um, and finally um, it's you know regeneration isn't just about buildings and spaces it's about people's lives and art can enrich people's lives enormously it should be out there from primary school for everybody all that stuff that we lost with it when the Arts Council was decimated uh, we need to put that back and in my borough they can afford it Okay, James? Uh, and so, sorry, the, the question is what regulation or measure uh, you'd like to see we're suggesting to be introduced to facilitate what, the provision of, of art spaces is that right? Or? I, it's more general than that it was just to regulate the market so Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of opposed to any new policies introduced to regulations introduced, mainly because they always have untoward consequences. And I think, as, as I tried to explain, uh, I'm against there being any special dispensation uh, for art under the planning system, uh, because there are all sorts of people uh, in businesses and groups who need needs. Uh, churches, places of worship, land for that is really in short supply, there's a lot of competition for that. Cemeteries, care homes, hospitals, schools, playing fields. So uh, I, I don't think the solution is through new policy and measures. I think this, the, 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 the problem is a much greater one than that that is kind of linked to the 47 uh, planning system and the nature particularly of the plan-led system. So I think we need to look uh, for changes in that area. Okay, and Alan? Um, uh, I think things like uh, rent controls and stabilisation often is part of the symptom of low horizons. I mentioned it in New York when you have things like stabilisation and control, uh, often they're just passed down now by families. You may get, uh, and what tends to happen is you have Union Square, really amazing warehouse, 300 bucks a month, that's all great, but doesn't really contribute to the context of provision and expanding for everyone. And I think that's why we have to uh, readdress the whole idea of, of uh, uh, ambitious, large-scale investment in infrastructure. Just a couple of quick points. I was on the London Arts Council for quite a while and it's infuriating how every time an artist wants to get funding or an art institution, you're now forced to tick off loads of boxes about how you're going to contribute towards obesity or self-esteem or if you want to do a dance thing, somehow that's going to improve uh, mental health outcomes. And, you know, it's Orwellian, and they, people chuckle and they laugh, but it's quite problematic, right? Because you think, what should art be? And if you really believe that there's something 
you know, death the real was beauty or an attempt to strive to reflect the world. Because I think artists really, they reflect the world brilliantly if they're brilliant. And, uh, and really, uh, uh, rather than transform the world, which is up to everyone. And, you know, so, so the thing is, on the one hand, I'd say, let artists be artists and don't try and impose an instrumentalism on them. Let art institutions be, be great art institutions. Uh, but let's, you know, in terms of this question, it's an interesting one. I, I would dispense with most licensing laws. Sounds mad, right? Because you've asked more about planning and building. And I think there should be planning decisions about how we grow and develop. But they should be much more ambitious and uh, they should be about infrastructure and transport and development and growth. And also complexity and also aesthetics and all these things that are unfashionable today. But actually licensing is a major problem. It was actually introduced in Britain, for instance, to stop the working class drinking at wrong times, let them go to the First World War, temperance movement, much of that. Very rarely do private members clubs get ravey for drinking. Uh, my own experience at the Vibe Bar in Brick Lane now is that we have this whole discussion about regeneration and gentrification, but actually, crazily, even though we're about to have 24-hour uh, underground, long, 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 sort of way behind it when it should have come, uh, many, many bars and clubs around the capital and across the UK are now having their wings clipped and being prevented from having late night drinking and some of them are having to go out of business. I think that's the problem because I actually come from a world, a moment where young people didn't go and ask the Arts Council for money. And I don't want to try and pretend that somehow we were like those brave people in civil rights movements or anyone like Sylvia Pankhurst or people on Cable Street that were from around here. But actually they went and organised acid house parties which were illegal and the police were trying to stop. We didn't have any funding. Uh, everyone said it was wrong. Uh, and they tried to stop us. But actually, that's how new movements start. And if we're constantly asking to be flattered by people that we say we no longer believe in their ideas but still represent them, then we're not going to get anywhere. And I think that we have a responsibility, however mad it might sound, to say we can have everything and more. That if you believe genuinely that we deserve this and that everybody deserves it, then we go out and say it. Because what's the point of keep getting voted in saying there's limits and we have to be have low horizons and you've got to squeeze this bit here and not have that bit there. What's the point of doing that? Right? Surely you should go out and argue for everything for everyone. So, uh, just to finish, it's so interesting today that you have someone that in the past you might have associated with something else that talks about solidarity. I find it really interesting and quite encouraging actually that someone's involved in the house building talks about solidarity because the last time I heard solidarity was a Billy Elliot musical which is terrible. I had shivers go down my, sh my, my spine. With all these people with this accent, it's solidarity, solidarity. I can't sing, obviously. But, and you think, what's happened to that idea, right? It's frightening. Everyone wants to blame one another. We, we, we got it with racism. We kind of realised... It's really they're trying to get us all to argue amongst each other and blame one another for the problems of resources. But now we're doing it with all these other things. Rather than saying, let's have a common goal and a common purpose... And a bit of solidarity as people and say, well, if these ideas that are here are not good enough, let's come up with some new ones together and let's make it an artistic and an investment project for the future for all of us. OK, can we thank the panel for their uh, contributions to the uh, discussion? Thank you.